it tells us that he went out and killed himself. <clears throat> but oftentimes in the scriptures, you also have to ask, what does the scripture not say? This is what the scripture says. Judas came to the realization that what he had done was horrible, came to the realization that he had spilled innocent blood, <clears throat> but he never received Christ. He never, uh, he never called him Jesus the Christ. He never called him God. He never repented and he never received. Many, many people regret what they have done in life. And they die regretting what they have done in life, but they do not die having repented and received Jesus Christ. Judas is no different than anyone else who had contact with Jesus Christ and ultimately rejected him. That's all Judas was, except for he played a prime role in God's plan to take God's son to the cross. Finally, we learn this, he's not to be pitied. The world likes to pity the victim. Judas was not a victim. So then we ask this question, who's Caiaphas? And he was the high priest and the son-in-law of Annas, who was the previous high priest. And Annas, whose name means the grace of Jehovah, had been removed from office by Rome when Jesus was approximately 16 or 17 years old. And although his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was then officially appointed as a high priest, Annas still, still wielded a lot of power and influence. And we're going to see that coming up. So they have this problem, and Caiaphas steps up <clears throat> this problem with Jesus. And the problem is, we need to kill him or we need to at least kidnap him until all two million people go home or a million people go home. And so they were talking about that, and Caiaphas is the one that stepped up and said, no, you don't understand. It's, it's better for one man to die for the nation instead of the whole nation perishing. I won't get into reteaching that lesson, but you can work that out on your own if you have notes and that type of thing. But Caiaphas and Annas show up again during the trial of Jesus, which we will read about later in our study. However, there is an encounter I referenced last week in the book of Acts that I believe is worth looking at. And this is actually where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. I believe it is interesting and important to understand where the enemies of Jesus ended up after they played their part in the most heinous crime in history. And there's a reason that's important. It shows repentant or non-repentant, unrepentant hearts. In the third chapter of Acts, we read about an enlightening encounter between two of Christ's apostles and a beggar. Peter and John are preaching and teaching every place, <clears throat> and they're healing. Well, where are they at this point? It tells us that they are in Jerusalem, and they're near the temple. And they encounter a lame beggar at the gate, beautiful. And this beggar had been a constant fixture there. And we know this as we begin to read through Acts. This beggar got their attention. And as they looked upon him, Peter, knowing what he required, what he wanted, said the following to this beggar. Acts 3, 
verse 6. But Peter said, <clears throat> I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now this miraculous healing takes place, and then the scriptures tell us what happened next. Acts 3.8 says this, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So why is this event so significant? And what set this miracle apart from others, perhaps, that Jesus had performed or the apostles had performed? Well, the first two verses of chapter 3 gives us some important details. The first thing we notice is why Peter and John were at the temple and ultimately encountered this fellow. Acts 3.1 says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So what were they doing? Well, in today's vernacular, they were going to church to prayer meeting. By the way, we have those here if any of you want to visit them. Wednesday at 11 to 11.30, we have brown bag lunch, have a lot of good fellowship. From 11.30 to 1, we pray for many of you every week. This man had never walked. His muscles, tendons, and bones were undeveloped. And his feet were probably withered and crooked. How do we know this? Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms and those of those entering the temple. Totally dependent all of his life on someone carrying him to the gate beautiful where he could beg in order to survive. Now, he wasn't there to receive a miracle. It was a matter of survival for him. And by the way, have you given up on your miracle, maybe? Can you see how for years upon years upon years upon years, lying at the gate, viewing everyone from the ground up, withered feet, and legs, saying, Lord, God, I need to survive. Please bless. <clears throat> and for what all we know, this miracle, uh, this lame man may have begun asking for a miracle. He was 40 years old. How many years, how many days did he stay lame? The first miracle you need if you have stopped believing your miracle is the miracle of salvation. That's the first miracle that matters. To believe and receive Jesus Christ. The next thing we learn is how Peter and John responded to him. Acts 3, 7 says this, And he, meaning Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. 
Now, how would you have responded if this had happened to you? Just think about it for a moment, maybe. How would you have responded? Of all the things you could have done, what would you have said? Well, we learn what he did. He leaped up. <clears throat> he stood. Okay. Withered feet. No muscles of any kind, of any consequence. Tendons. Probably damaged bones. When he looked down at his feet, he, they probably looked more like baby's feet. And he leaped up and he stood. Immediately. He stood. I maybe would have tried that. You stand. And then he's thinking, well, this has gone pretty well. I think I'll walk for the first time ever. I'm going to place one foot in front of the other. I'm walking. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with Peter and John. Walking, and then the next word is leaping. You think there's joy? Do you, do you think this is stunning to him? He stood and he's thinking, I'm standing. And he began to walk for the first time in my life. I can get from there to there without somebody carrying me. And then he entered the temple. And as he is walking, entering the temple, it begins to sink in and he begins to leap and jump. I know several six to nine-year-olds that all they do is leap and jump. And they go, they scream. And they're filled with joy. And they're, they're just really excited. But this was more than that. Because this man began as he's leaping and jumping to praise God. This man did not have feet that were physically capable of supporting his own weight. Now listen to this. In addition to this, balancing our own weight requires the brain to constantly signal the muscles and tendons to adjust accordingly based upon the information the legs are transmitting to the brain. This wasn't just a physical healing. This man was totally healed. His motor skills... His body had never worked this way before. So therefore, we have an account of this man standing, walking, and finally leaping and praising God. And what was the response of the witnesses to this miracle? We have that beginning in verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And the next verse is so tender and powerful. It says this, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's Porch. 
And when Peter saw it, what do you think he did? He addressed the people. Okay, so let's go back and capture this. Peter and John are on their way to church to prayer meeting. Now, first of all, there's a reason they were going to prayer meeting, and it's twofold. One is because they should go to prayer meeting, and secondly, it's because this beggar had an appointment, a divine appointment with them. They didn't know that. You know, sometimes until you go someplace, you don't know why you're there. And then all of a sudden you go, oh. Peter and John are walking. They start to go in the beautiful gate. And we think Peter looks down and notices him. And he says, you know, what you want I can't give. But this is what I can give you. And he reached down and picked him up. And I don't know what this man was feeling in his legs and in his feet, but I'm sure it was interesting and odd. And his choice was to walk, stand, walk, leap, and begin to praise God. Now, the people around him saw this because he's been lying there for Years upon years upon years doing the same thing. There's been no miracle in this man's life that they can see. And God decides to do a miracle. Now, why would he do that? It would do you well to go to chapter 3 this week and begin reading and just read through what Peter said to the crowd. We don't have time to do that tonight, today. But this is where our two stories meet. The one we're studying in Luke and the one we're looking at in Acts. Acts 4, verse 5 says this, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So the whole gang was there. The priestly family was there. Same old, same old, right? That's where they are. This is, this is where they hang out. These are the men who humiliated, tortured, and crucified their rabbi, their leader, their friend, and their lord. Still there. Not only that, but they had convinced many of the people that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. To the leadership's credit, when it came to survival, they could immediately identify a problem that could jeopardize jeopardize their way of life. And they're seeing this. So they decided that they had to confront these fellows although at first they didn't recognize who they were. In the language of Barney Fife, they had to nip it in the bud. And only old people are laughing right now. So they sent for them. Okay, remember? Man has been lame for 40 years. There's a miracle. Stands, walks, leaps, praises God. They go on to Solomon's porch. And the crowd is so excited. They're following this guy. They're following these people. And Jesus and uh, Peter gives this great oratory. Just a, a compelling thing. And the next day, 
These folks come in because they've heard about what happened. So Acts 4, 7. And when they had set them in the midst of the council, remember what the council was last week? Sanhedrin. Same old, same old. And when they had sent them into, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Does this sound familiar to you? They were always asking Jesus, by what name or by what power are you doing these miracles? And Jesus is a little clandestine for a while. He answered it, though. By what power the name do you do this? In verse 12 of, of Acts 4, in verse 8 of Acts 4, it says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, they're in the Sanhedrin, the powerful of the powerful of the powerful. And they've been asked this question, By whose name are you doing this? And this is Peter's answer. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, no doubt who he's talking about here, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and just in case he still didn't get it, whom you crucified... And whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now that could mean two things. I'm not saying it does. Standing before you healed and well. Standing before you well. He's well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the most powerful presentation of the gospel I've read. Now, in addition to Peter being extremely confrontational with these fellows, you would think he might be cowering. You know, Peter has a history of that, doesn't he? you think he might be cowering. In addition to Peter being extremely confrontational with these fellows by saying, whom you crucified, his answer of no other name under heaven given among men, which uh, anyone might be saved, would have been considered blasphemy. They didn't even challenge that. That's what they convicted Jesus on. This according to the high priest who previously declared it at one of Christ's trials. Blasphemy. So Peter is risking his life with these words. And this was incredibly courageous. So, Peter... The man who had denied Christ three times out of fear for his own life is now fearless in the presence of the same men who had crucified Jesus. And his courage was not lost on the leadership, by the way. Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And there's an important point here. 
They had no cameras. They had no photographs. As blessed as they were, they had no 24-hour news stations. They may never have seen Peter and John. So what identified them? Their boldness. It was the disciples' boldness and their knowledge that finally identified them as followers of Jesus Christ. See, we can know Jesus, can we not? We can be saved, can we not? We can even be living a quiet life for the glory of God, can we not? But people may not notice that. How easy would it have been for Peter and John to slip away? There were no wanted posters out. But what, what triggered the leadership was their boldness and their knowledge. Peter was not the same man that he was in the garden and later in the courtyard. He had changed as a result of those events. He had been broken, and he was not only repentant, but he was living in repentance. By the way, that's key. To continually live in repentance. How many sins do you do a day? How many sins do you commit a day? Don't keep track. You can't. Thoughts, words, attitudes. God does call us to continue to live in repentance, a repentant heart. What made David a man after God's own heart? Rock has been studying David. He's, he's having a hard time right now, David is. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. And yet God continues to call him a man, a man after his own heart. He had a repentant heart. Acts 4, 14 says this, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, meaning the beggar, they had nothing to say in opposition. A little more about this beggar, this beggar in a little while. So this was the council's solution. But when they had commanded them, Peter and John, to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now remember, a day has passed. From the time this miracle took place and Peter began to speak in the temple, an entire day has passed and so many people have heard about it. The Sanhedrin refers to it this way. All of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have seen it and we cannot deny it. And although Peter had changed, the religious elite had not. They were the same men they always were. The miracles of Christ they had witnessed, the powerful words they had heard, the integrity of Christ in his final hours, all lost on them. All lost. Didn't mean anything. The role they played in the arrest, torture, crucifixion, and death of Christ did not impact them. No regrets, no remorse. 
and no repentance. And not even this most recent event, who they themselves admitted was an undeniable miracle, changed them. You would think, after all they had done a few days back, and they watched the death of Christ, and what we understand, the resurrection, and the role they played in that, that perhaps this one final incredible miracle would have moved them. It didn't. They sent them away. Out. So how about you? How many times have you been confronted with the gospel? And instead of surrendering to this truth, you sent the messenger away. Uh, when I was much younger, it was during what we called the Jesus Movement in the 70s. That's something that some of you have only read about as ancient history. But it wasn't to us. And I'm telling you, there were aggressive, opinionated new believers hounding me every other day to receive Jesus. And I can't really say I approved of their technique, but you know what I heard every other day? The gospel. <laughs> it may have been a little weird. I heard the gospel every other day. Did that take boldness? I think it did. So how many times have you heard the gospel and as soon as they closed their mouths, you just went, eesh, ay caramba. I don't want to be like that. Well, forgive us that because sometimes we're really excited about God. Let me ask you this way. How many times have you been close to surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ and instead you chose to seek a number of things, maybe solace in your sin? You know, sin is comforting. You know that? You should know that because we're all sinners in that way. You seek solace in your sin or you seek solace in the things with which you are most familiar. Many times we think we just can't cope with this right now. I've got to get away. What does that mean? I'm seeking solace in the things with which I'm familiar it brings a fleshly comfort or the things that excite your flesh. You know, sometimes when people feel conviction, they sin more. I remember a number of people that the more we talk to them about Jesus, over the course of time, the worse they seem to get. And someone said, they're real close to breaking. And in that case, they were. It's like they gave everything they had. They put up every defense they did everything they could to wipe this from their mind. They avoided us. Da 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 da. And all of a sudden, they just fell. Or you could do the things that would demand nothing of you. Video games are popular. Uh, I praise God that those came out after I was so influenced. Because <laughs> I would have been. Just one massive piece of flesh with no bones or tendons. I would have been a blob. That's where you find comfort, maybe. 
or movies. Or some people go to the mall. They're really whacked. Just so you know, I go to the mall. So what are you running to when Christ is confronting you? Did the men of the council receive? Did they say perhaps we should reconsider all that we have seen about this Jesus? This was their chance. Peter and John are in their presence. They just healed. Well, God just healed this guy through them. Did any of them say, you know, whoa, wait just a minute here. I've seen too much of this stuff to just just walk away from it any longer. No, they didn't do that. They sent them away. So this may be exactly what God is saying to you this morning. He may be pressing you to reconsider all that you have seen and heard and ask the honest question, is there something more to Jesus that he's been trying to tell me about? So what was their solution? Verse 17, but in order that the gospel of Jesus Christ may spread no further among people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Same old, same old, right? Same old, same old. Jesus continues to be a problem for the leadership. Their solution is to meet and conspire and plan and do whatever it takes to stomp out this new religious cult. And that's exactly what it was to them. By the way, do you know who else, had it not been for God, may have been in that council? Saul. Or Paul, as we know him. You know he was a Pharisee. And you know that after Jesus was crucified, he asked permission to go to Damascus and persecute, and Christians were murdered. He may very well have been in this council. By the way, John and Alexander, the sons and nephews of Annas and Caiaphas, they were there. Saul needed rescued. We do too. Do you still need rescued? So back to our story. So how did their solution for this latest problem work out? Guys, listen. We're going to let you off the hook. Just don't preach in this guy's name anymore. Just don't do that anymore. They're scared. The same way they were scared with Jesus. It says, let us warn them to speak no uh, no more to anyone in in this name, so they called them and, cha- and charged them not to ask, uh, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. And we know this: that Jesus gives another wonderful dissertation. He says, "We can't help it. We can't help it." These guys were the same men they'd always been. And yet it was impossible for Peter to remain the same because he had become a new creation. He had been born again. That phrase that you hear so much, the Holy Spirit does not rest. The Holy Spirit within us is relentless as he compels us to crave and surrender to God's will for the sake of his glory. 
The Holy Spirit is not resting in you. The same is true of sin, by the way. Sin does not rest. The sin within our flesh is relentless as it compels us to crave and surrender to our own will for our own glory. Sin is a conqueror, a dictator, a ruthless taskmaster. Sin does not lie dormant. You may think it is, but it is not. It grows within us, and it always will, and it is active unless you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible tell us the final cost of sin is? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very plainly laid out here. If you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is within you. And the Holy Spirit is not content for you to be the same. So the Holy Spirit is active within you. And some of the things you're beginning to feel conviction over, or some of the things you're beginning to ask that you've always done that now you don't think they're so good anymore. And it may just be for you right now. It doesn't mean it's for anybody else. But the Holy Spirit is saying, for you, Tom Shoemate, this is a problem with you, and you need to stop this right now. Yeah, but they do it. I'm not talking about them to you. I'm talking about you to you. And I'm not going to leave you alone. I am going to be relentless in conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that will happen ultimately in glory. Or you can choose sin. And sin is relentless also. And by the way, sin could not care less about you. And the ultimate destiny is death. So why this extensive background and study? Why do we, what do we gain from it? I believe it helps our emotions not to be swayed during the narrative of the passion of Christ. See, this is what we know about Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, the descendants of that uh, high priest family. This is what we know about them. They never changed. Do not let your mind wonder about what would have happened if anything else had happened, because nothing else happened. They were resolute in who they were. They were content with who they were. As a matter of fact, they loved who they were. And in spite of many things, how many, how many things could God still have taken to Caiaphas and Annas and these other people to where they would have changed their mind? So we now know that the intentions of Annas and Caiaphas and probably their sons and nephews during the trials of Christ were evil and remained evil. They were hopeless, regenerate men who willingly, however unwittingly, played a crucial role in the fulfillment of God's plan for the sake of His glory and for the sake of you and me. We learned last week that the same was true of Judas. As Jesus was making His way to the cross, God knew your name. God knew you would be sitting here in our odd little church of bent nails in Midway Mall in Elyria, Ohio, on this day in human history, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And you also know that I'm the best he could strum up to do that. Now think about that. The question is, what is God asking of you this morning? Is he asking you for your heart? For salvation? Or perhaps he is asking you to take another giant leap of faith with him this morning. And before we close, may I, may I ask uh, the question that is answered in Luke 22.8. Who did Jesus send out to prepare the Passover meal? Peter and John. Go and prepare the Passover that we may eat it. Now, does this mean anything special? I don't know. But I do know that our God is a God of economy, right? The choosing of those two disciples, he just didn't look around and say, um, Peter and John, go on down there and prepare the Passover meal. By the way, the preparation of the Passover meal was significant. Family, I can tell you a hundred times how much you are loved here at the Gathering Community Church. However, that pales considerably in light of the fact that God the Father loves you so much that He gave God the Son so that you can be reconciled to Him, God the Father, for eternity. What we do here, I believe, is incredibly important. I believe it's, it's very important. But in comparison to what God has already done for you, we, if this is child's play, Romans 15, 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What a wonderful word Paul had for us in Romans. And I think sometimes it's difficult for us to be amazed anymore.